Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. And we got the door open tonight to let Mr. Rollins come in and out as we please. And I think that the sound should be the same. This isn't really that much of a soundproof room. Is he around here somewhere? I don't know. Mr. Rollins, where are you he, at, buddy? He's, he's coming and going. He's been coming and going all night long, just kind of checking us out and then going back to his little his little cat television window upstairs to watch the other birds and other <laughs> animals run around. and, and <laughs> To watch the outside program. To watch the outside <laughs> program. Season season uh, uh, one million. Uh, really, 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 really fun night we Yo, had tonight. So and it's so much fun. And it's what we needed because we I, I, I want to talk about this for a second because there's a lot of people that still listen to this show that I would say are from the old school, right? The old school of the show, the, when when Doug was the other co-host here. Doug, everybody knows Doug Semig, uh, and he gets mentioned all the time here. He's always here in spirit, and he pretty much is the reason that Ghostly Talk is around. He's our patron saint. He's our patron saint. He really is, uh, and you know he's been he's been on the show here and there. We've had him on here and since we started back up at sixteen, uh, but uh, some bad news came in this week. Um, Mr. Semig, uh, Pete Semig, uh, Doug's dad, he um, is in, he's, I don't know what's the nice way to it's say this. Critical he, condition. He's in, he's in grave condition and he may not have much longer. So, yeah, send some nice thoughts and yeah, um, good energy towards. I know, there, as I said, there's a lot, we, uh, we have a lot of Doug. friends that listen to the show that know Doug personally. We, we know people personally. We have a lot of people listening to the show that are friends of ours that like to listen. And um, I just... Uh, I don't know if it was the best thing to do, but I wanted to mention that, that, yeah, Mr. Semig, uh, and, the, and the reason that this really does kind of hit me in the gut is that when we started this show up, we started this show up in Mr. Semig's house. Um, Mr. Semig, uh, Pete, I always referred to him as Mr. Semig, and he would always say, call me Pete, but I was always called him Mr. Semig, as a sign of respect. Uh, but we st- we started up the Haunted Basement Studio was in Doug's parents' basement, right? And... They were night. That's where I got to know Mr. and Mrs. Semig really well uh, over the years, and they've been dear friends of mine and like another set of parents uh, all these years to me. I've always, I've always uh, looked at him that way and always respected and loved him that way. So, yeah, keep Mr. Semig uh, in your in your thoughts and in your prayers, whatever whatever you do out there. Uh, and yeah, uh, I just wanted to put that out there that yeah, Doug's gonna be hurting, I think, and uh, we all gotta be there right. for the guy. Uh, I know listeners of the show have probably heard us talk about our, U- our two UFO encounters that we've had over the years. Yeah. One where I think was more of a, a manned or a nuts and bolts that type was the UFO one f- with me, you, and Tom. The Police Academy UFO. The Police Academy UFO. Yeah, the Police Academy UFO. And, uh, and then this one I saw uh, my friend Marnie and I saw about four years ago. And I won't go into explanation because I already did. already do in the show. Yeah. And so you get to hear it again. But, hey, I've only had so many experiences. So, you know, I got to retell them. But I, I got it's really... valuable airtime we need there. Well, I got really excited about this because this is one of those things where I, I experienced it. I couldn't explain it. I found uh, filmmaker Scott Deshane and his movies about what was the term you highlighted in your notes? Because it was oh, a really good one. I got it one. right here. Um, yeah, aer- aerobiology. Yeah, yeah, like things living in the sky. So imagine yes. creatures living in the sky that are like jellyfish or squids well, zipping around and maybe feeding off of thunderstorms and the minerals and things that happened during that whole like chemical process and just he brought up that the atmosphere 
is 5 million times greater in volume than the oceans. So imagine what's up there that we have no idea is going on. Just like we're, we're kind of clueless about what's going on in our own oceans uh, on things. So well, there's always being new, new, new animals, uh, uh, whether they're terrestrial or, or aquatic. But there's always new stuff being discovered. This is one of those shows that's gonna, I think, expand your mind a bit and make you think differently and yeah. make you look at the UFO phenomena in a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely fascinating, and yeah, we were so really excited. I and also you can find all of Scott's information at thelivingsky.com. Scott the Shane, yep. and we're going to put. All of the information linked up on our site. Yeah. Uh, so you can click on that. And plus, if you want to purchase anything from his site, such as his films, there is going to be a 20% off code. And I believe that is The Living Sky. That's what he said. Yeah. 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 So, so if so you put in The Living Sky, Ghostly Talk listeners will get 20% off. And his stuff is already not that expensive. No, it's dirt cheap. So it's dirt cheap. Let's talk a little bit about Scott. Yes. Though. So for over 15 years, author and filmmaker Scott DeShane has explored and promoted the hypothesis of the living sky, that Earth's atmosphere may provide homes to a wide variety of living creatures. His landmark article on the topic called The Sky is Alive was featured in Fortean Times, which he, he doesn't mention that was a cover story. The world's foremost journal of strange phenomena. Times, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was selected by the magazine as one of its top 40 articles for the celebration of its 40th anniversary. Super awesome. And uh, Scott helped lead an investigation into the mystery lights of Marfa, Texas, for an episode of the Travel Channel's America Declassified. Using cutting-edge technology, the team of researchers found evidence that the lights may actually be bioluminescence from unknown aerial organisms. I yeah. love it. Yeah. And his documentary, Not Alone, The Life Above, presents the hypothesis of an atmospheric life through historic scientific evidence and actual footage of lifelike objects in Earth's atmosphere recorded during many NASA space flights, which is what makes this documentary really interesting to watch, are these clips from NASA yeah. and the conversations that the astronauts are having with the people on the ground. Uh, and this 2018... International UFO Congress uh, awarded the film uh, its EBE award for best short UFO film. Yeah. And then his newest film, The Cahoke Light, presents the results of a year-long field study of a mystery light in rural eastern Virginia. Numerous witnesses described their encounters for the film. The chain's group captured stunning footage that shows the Cahoke Light, like many other mystery lights around the planet, may actually be caused by those bioluminescent aerial organisms. DeShane hopes to encourage the scientific community to explore the possibilities for life in the sky. He proposes surveying a range of potential habitats at all levels of the atmosphere for evidence of life. He predicts that in the very near future, careful study will reveal that the living sky plays a vital role in our planetary system and in mankind's future. Enjoy our chat.
friend Marnie, who's been on the show before. Yeah. We're out in Grand Haven, Michigan. Mm-hmm. We're in our favorite hangout spot. It's about 1130 at night. Yeah. It's a May weekend. It's not too cold, not too hot. We're having late night coffee, mm-hmm. talking. We're right along the Grand River, which dumps into Lake Michigan. And while we're sitting there across the way, there's a little putt-putt golf course. And it was the high school's prom night. So they could stay out till 4 a.m., play games, do stuff all night. And one of those locations was that. So there yeah, was like a yeah. few kids out there playing, doing their thing. Marnie and I are just sort of looking out that way, talking, when all of a sudden, which ironically we were also talking about UFOs, mm-hmm. all of a sudden this strange jellyfish-like object just starts coming over the top of the putt-putt course, and the only thing I can – my first thought is it's a drone. But then as it got closer, I'm like, drones aren't see-through and don't move like that. Like, and yeah. what? And we just sort of stared at it. Of course, my phone's in the car for reasons yeah. unknown. And then Marnie's just staring, and it sort of comes closer to us, stops, and then just takes off at, like, a crazy speed. And then none of the kids noticed it. They're, like, lost in their putt-putt world. And we're, like, just the two old ladies up on the hill. I just saw something totally unexplainable in the sky. Yeah. So then I got home, and I sat there looking up because it was unlike what Scott and I saw in, what was that, back in 08, around that time? That was 08. um, And we saw, like— That was in Grand Haven also. It was. It kind of in the same area. Same area, yeah. Uh, But that was more of like a nuts—I felt like a nuts and bolts type UFO uh, from what we were that night. Well, it seemed to operate like one. Yeah. It it looked like it was actually spinning and it had lights. This was reddish, translucent, sort of like softly bell-shaped. So when I got home, I just started searching and I could not find a lot of information on this, like nothing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I found a movie called Not Alone, The Life Above by Scott DeShane. Yeah. And I was like, oh, purchase, take my money. <laughs> and so then I immediately like sent the link to Romarni. And then I ever since then, I was like, I think what we saw was some type of biological entity living in our atmosphere, which Scott is here with us tonight yeah. to talk more about. We have two documentaries that we're going to talk about. Uh, one is where I think it's more focused a little bit, not alone, is like sort of like the old school UFO and connecting it with well, biological stuff. But then we have like the ghost light phenomena, which is a really popular topic in the paranormal world. Yeah. Ghost lights are all over the world. And could these potentially be a biological you know, bioilluminating entity. Yeah, and, and that's what the idea. You know, yeah. and we're we're gonna dive into that. Yes. Now, Scott, <clears throat> you know, from not alone. One of the things I wanted to ask you about. One of the terms that came out that really stuck out for me, and I wrote it down here, was the term aerial biology. Yeah. Right. And by oh, by the way, thanks. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm entranced by Amber's story. What a great story, Amber. <laughs> thank, no, yeah, seriously. Yeah, thank me and it's suspense. What a great story. <laughs> Before we start grilling you, uh, no, thank you so much for for coming here and spending some time with us really we really appreciate it Um, thank you for having me it's an honor yeah but there was this term that came out in not alone uh called aerial biology which i just absolutely found fascinating um could we just kind of like expand on that for a second to kind of i think i think that'd be a good way to kind of get a seating here on what we're going to be talking about and like what what i guess what your what's your definition of what aerial biology would be well we as humans like to look at different things and try to make sense of them. And we do things by 
drawing categories, drawing lines between different subjects. Yes. And we study terrestrial biology. We study the animals that live around us on the land. And we study marine biology. And we found out that you know, there's an incredible variety of life living in the oceans. But the science of aerobiology is kind of still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. It started out when, uh, in, in the early part of the 20th century when people started investigating how diseases spread in hospitals. And they found out that you know, sometimes microbes are actually moving through the air. And now aerobiology is mostly focused on how plant and insect diseases spread through the atmosphere to affect different crops and things. So we're not looking at, though, uh, we know that certain types of living things move through the atmosphere, you know, insects, birds, uh, but we aren't focused too much on the whole atmosphere as a habitat, uh, whether there's such an incredible variety there as we find in the oceans. And part of that's because we like to draw lines and we say, oh, there's things that live in the water, but they don't come out of the water and live in the sky. And actually, there are things that do move out of the water into the sky. Well, when I started looking at the idea, well, what if the atmosphere is a habitat? I did a lot of research and a lot of work in uh, environmental uh, studies and uh, natural resources and how habitats and ecology works. So when you start looking at the atmosphere as a habitat, you start looking for likely places where living things would be, places where they would find resources and shelter. And just about everywhere you look in the atmosphere, you find these weird phenomena that seem to resemble living things. And so, uh, but nobody's really looking at the whole idea well, of, of all these variety of, of uh, phenomena and mm-hmm. saying, well, gee, what if we have a biology of the atmosphere? So I, I, I use the term aerobiology, but looking real closely at this subject, again, they aren't totally confined to the atmosphere. I think some of them spend a lot of time in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. but we see them moving into parts of the earth like caves springs, rivers, they see them moving into bodies of water. We even see some of them moving at the edge of the atmosphere, at the edge of space. So these things are moving through the atmosphere, but they're not confined to the atmosphere. Yeah. So aerobiology is kind of like one aspect of the whole phenomena. Well, as I was watching uh, Not Alone, and I mean, I was just getting this idea. It was funny because as soon as you started talking about the atmosphere, I mean, that was the, the natural, and you're right, I mean, that does tie it all together. I mean, we as humans, we love to categorize things. That's how we make sense of things. We want right. to put them in neat little boxes so it makes sense to us so, so we can come back to it later on if we have to or whatever, right? Right. So um, that was the first thing that came to, came to mind minutes into the, the documentary was, um, okay, well, we have, all, we have water here. We have land on this planet. You know, and those are these ecosystems that, that, that well, I hope they're still thriving. <laughs> Who knows these days? Um, but why wouldn't we have this other ecosystem outside of it not being bound just to the, the terra and the water itself? Why couldn't this be one massive system where, where creatures or be, well, let's call them creatures, uh, why, why couldn't they? Uh, train you know leave the water and go up into the atmosphere and i know there's a lot of questions with this and i know there's a lot of as you said it's a newer field right right well the atmosphere is a big place i mean it is huge and that's one of the things we're still you know we like to think of ourselves as you know we're the dominant life form on the planet we're the apex predators we we rule the world but you know we're confined our habitat is confined to the surface 
of the land mass yeah. on the planet. And we know how big the oceans are, mm -hmm. but uh, the atmosphere has 5 million times more volume yeah. than all the Earth's oceans. So think of all that space, and there's an incredible amount of water moving through the atmosphere. There are minerals, there's dust, there's an incredible amount of energy moving through the atmosphere. There's all kinds of resources mm -hmm. for that living things would need for life. So uh, I think there's lot, several different reasons why we don't look at it uh, as a source of life. Is Part of it's because we're immersed in it. I think there's an old saying that the fish doesn't know what water is. Yeah, because it lives in it all the time. And we don't think of the atmosphere as, you know, it's around us. We don't we take for granted our breathing and we only notice the atmosphere when there's something wrong, like bad weather or pollution or some kind. Uh, but, you know, it's all around us all the time and it towers above us. And there's a huge uh, space up there where things are moving around all the time. And we're just starting to reach out. We're just getting the technology where we can actually get a good look at what's going on up there. If you think, you know, we've only had powered flight for what, 118 years since the Wright brothers Correct. took off. And uh, we're still in our infancy in terms of exploring the habitat of the atmosphere. Mm. Um, and that is 100% right. We, <clears throat> I think we as humans look up to the sky. Um, I, I think there's a lot of us that wonder. I know I wonder. I know Amber wonders. I know you wonder, Scott. Uh, <laughs> but we. But I think a lot of people when they when they look up to the sky, they just see the night and the day, right? Yeah. And right. I mean, breathing, for example, it got to be thinking about that. I mean, and it is right. Like when you're so accustomed to something, you, unfortunately, I think you, you, people do take it for granted, right? And right. Breathing, for example, oxygen. Uh, once you're deprived of that, you <laughs> you realize very quickly how much you missed it, right? What was I missing, right? <laughs> but do we really know? But we as people, do we really know? Like, so this is that is like the life force. This is what keeps us going: is air, breathing, oxygen, right? But I guess if, if you were to go to like ten people, I think, and I not I hate, not I hate quizzing people, but if you were to go to like ten people on the street randomly with a microphone and say, "Can you explain what oxygen is to me?" Like, you know, and not you don't have to get really deep or really nerdy but what is it like you know what what does it do chemically what does it do to your body i guarantee you the majority of them will not be able, be able to really answer that they'll just be like well it's the stuff you breathe <laughs> and i'm not saying people are dumb you know but it's just not something that a lot of people besides people in academia and science and things like that but, really think too much yeah. about and not but not all living things need the traditional way of breathing which which goes with the marine well, biology well right? yeah right and this got me going down this path when I was watching watching the documentary also, Scott. And, and squids come up a lot. Uh, right. Oh, yeah. Squids are fascinating. Well, yeah. Amber uh, touched on – her story touched on an interesting thing. Most people yeah. aren't looking at the sky. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're busy here on the ground. And when people take the time to look at the atmosphere, to actually look at the sky, they see things. And uh, one of the things that argues for this hypothesis is that so many people report things – in the atmosphere and there are so many different types of phenomena that people see in the atmosphere mm -hmm. uh, there are places where these things are seen regularly that you could actually plan to go there and, and even maybe at certain times of the year and you would see something in the sky that would be unexplainable yeah. so uh yeah it's just we aren't we haven't really focused on it yet and i think part of the problem is uh it sounds weird but it's branding um we don't know what do you call these things i right. mean ufos <laughs> It doesn't, it, it's not, it doesn't quite, I mean, 
if they're unidentified, it cracks me up when people say they're UFO experts. Like, well, if you're an expert, how come they're still unidentified? But, uh, yeah, well, but, <laughs> but uh, don't get me know. started. <laughs> <laughs> but so there's some resistance. Uh, you know, if you mention unidentified things in the atmosphere to scientists, it's like kryptonite to certain people. They go, ah, no, I'm not dealing with that. And then if you mention a scientific explanation to some UFO enthusiasts, they go, no, no, we want to, we don't want to talk about the aliens. So part of the question is, you know, what do you call these things? What's the brand, you know? <laughs> well, and it sounds like the middle ground is where, the, you know, like a lot of things, that's the sweet spot here. Yeah. Is finding that spot. Um, and I mean, I don't know if it'll ever make sense in our lifetimes. But it's oh, I seems- predicted, I predicted very shortly, oh. if, if we just start looking we're going to find a whole new world of life up there. And I think it's going to change. Uh, I think it's going to change the course of our civilization. I mean, how could it not? No it's doubt. Going to really, it's going to shake everything because people are going to realize, oh, my gosh. Yeah. There are things moving around us that are faster, bigger, more powerful than we might have imagined. They might actually have a huge role in, you know, actually creating yeah. our climate, our atmosphere. There might be a whole biological component to our atmosphere. It may be way more important than we give them credit for. Well, period. Yes. this could be yes. a component to the ongoing investigation that the government's making into what they have rebranded as UAP, Unidentified right. Aerial Phenomena. And right. this, this could be a whole thing with, you know, that that's been way more public since 2017 than, you know, after it kind of shut down with like Project Blue Book and some of that old school stuff. But yeah. it's... Who knows? Well, that raises an interesting yeah. question, and I'm curious about. I'm sorry, I'm taking us into the weeds here a little bit, but no, go I'm ahead. curious about what your opinion is on this, Scott. And and that is, do you think where we are now? I think I have an idea. That's just by your last comment. Um, where we are now is, you know, as a, as a, as a society, our interest in. I'm going to call them UFOs. That's perfectly <laughs> uh, acceptable. Uh, like, are do you think? I th- do you think the microscope is being put under the UFO phenomenon more nowadays than it was, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago, or 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 less? I mean, I'm just curious what your your opinion is on that. Uh, I don't know. I mm-hmm. I look at a lot of the the stuff that comes out of the media as uh, kind of noise. I mean, they're right. looking. They're trying to get eyeballs, and they're trying to get interest. I mean, I know the Office of Naval Intelligence has released some interesting uh, stuff but where do you begin i mean do you have the, the military investigated this is something that the national oceanic and atmospheric administration should be investigating nasa has all the evidence you saw on that not alone wow. but I, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. any evidence any evidence that they're looking for life in the atmosphere even though there's a, a you know a ton of evidence that's there i haven't seen any ongoing investigation so i wonder you know why are they teasing some of these releases why are they you know, i i'm not confident Believe me, I've done a lot of research into you know government archives and databases, and try to find research into you know creatures that live in the atmosphere. Yeah, and there there doesn't seem to be much. Uh, I mean, I know the Air Force in one of their early investigations into UFOs uh, hypothesized. They said that they act like animals more than anything else, but they said, but there's no known extraterrestrial animals that we know of. Well, they act like animals. They look like animals, uh, but we don't know about them. Well, maybe it's time we learn about. Maybe it's time so we I start looking. You know, into I kind of look yeah. at it as like you got to proceed without going into the weeds. You got to say, okay, this is our goal. This is our mission. We got to look at it this way and look at, at several different fronts. Mm-hmm. Well, and I found it interesting that Kenneth Arnold, who's citing in 1947, was the the first to coin a you know coin that term flying saucer. After he 
continued to research his entire life, felt that they were living entities in the sky. Isn't that crazy? It's, I didn't I, know that. I for didn't a either. Time. I didn't yeah. either. And I, I'm not the biggest like UFO history buff, but I had I did not know that about him. So yeah, yeah. And he said, I mean, he was all kinds of people came to him with their stories, and you know, after looking at him his whole life, he said, yeah, they're a natural part of the atmosphere. And no, and a lot of UFO people don't know that or they don't want to know that because it, in a way it kind of demystifies it. But to me, it makes it more fascinating. I mean, you look at some of these marine invertebrates and I think that, that's one of the reasons we're kind of fragmented today in our knowledge. We got all this knowledge, but we don't have people that are kind of, uh, you know, cross pollinating in a lot of different ways. So a lot of UFO enthusiasts might not have any knowledge of marine invertebrates and people that are studying marine biology might not be familiar with the UFO phenomena. But when those we put those two together, I mean, I've identified 10 different ways that UFOs resemble marine invertebrates. I mean, they're fascinating creatures. Yeah. And to me, you know, even if, if you look at it that way, people say, oh, what about the aliens? But some of these creatures, these marine invertebrates have ways of living. They go into a dormant cycle where they take like a cyst form or an egg form that's virtually indestructible. And if we think that things are entering the atmosphere – you know, people have posited the idea of panspermia, that uh, viruses and bacteria drift down into the atmosphere. You know, organic matter comes into the atmosphere. Uh, it kind of makes sense to me that you might have some of these you know, really hardy forms of invertebrate life entering the atmosphere as well, which would lead to the phenomena we see with UFO sightings where there are you know, waves of them, blossoms, sort of like blooms like we see with marine invertebrates like red tides. We'll sometimes see, you know, hundreds or thousands of yeah. UFOs appear all at once. So yeah, it's a it's a rich topic. Well, talking about the squid, and I mean, I always, and I am far from a marine biologist, very far from that. But <laughs> You're always, a squid guy, though. Huh? Well, no, squids are cool, <laughs> but I always thought that, you know, that obviously the squid. And the octopus, for example, they share some. They share obviously a lot of traits. They may yes. be related in certain ways. I'm sure. Well, their propulsion system. Their is propulsion like, system. Whoa. Is, yeah. Right. Their you intelligence. Know, their nervous well, that, system. Well, yeah, this is exactly where I'm going. Is just that because I've read article upon article about the octopus, for example. They say, "Look, man," and there's just some hilarious videos out there, man. There. I mean, again, I'm trying to stay out of the weeds here, but I have to. I got to relay this to everybody. There was a video <laughs> out there <clears throat> that I watched where. There were fish, like sharks. There was a big aquarium with a giant octopus in it in this uh, in this aquarium system, and on the other side, there were sharks in this other tank. And people started. And this you can find this video. I'm sure it's on YouTube or something like that. Uh, the the people that worked there were coming in. They're like, "We have sharks missing. Like they just can't walk away. Where's the sharks at? Right?" And this went on for a couple weeks. There were sharks just coming up missing here and there so they start looking at the video cameras and they show this octopus find a way to squeeze itself out of this giant aquarium that it lived in walk across the way crawl up the other aquarium find a way to squeeze itself in the other aquarium where the sharks are at chow oh down gosh. chow down on a shark a shark right finish its meal wipe its mouth and do the same thing in the opposite direction back to where its home was. So unbelievable! I mean, what a great story. I mean, and, <laughs> I mean, there's so many little things there that show serious intelligence, serious problem solving skills. That, right, that, right. That, well, well, that's one thing we think of ourselves as being the most intelligent organism on the planet. But looking at some of these invertebrates, they have 
a different type of intelligence. I mean, it, and that's part of our challenge too, is how we define intelligence. Yeah. People look for the search for intelligent life in the universe and, oh, are intelligent uh, species ever going to contact us? Uh, well, you know, you look at some of these marine invertebrates, they can survive under, you know, really incredible conditions. Pressure. They make their own, they make their own light. Mm -hmm. They reproduce in a variety of different ways. Yeah. They have built-in chemical and biological warfare tools, you know, yeah. that they've uh, have developed. Uh, you know, they, they can survive in an incredible variety of habitats. Mm -hmm. you know, to me, that that's survival. That's like the highest form of intelligence is just survival well, and, and that's thriving. A, a, to me, it goes back to what I, I said before, problem solving. Because that's really what, right. uh, I mean, that's what you do every day as a person. That's how you make money in this world is you, you solve problems, right? It's all people right. do. You're solving problems. <clears throat> and I think the, the ape, I mean, I hate to use this term, but a, an apex predator is a creature that can solve problems quicker than other ones, right? I don't think a person, like a, like, you know, a 200 pound man, would be able to find a way, first off, to squeeze its body through whatever, because we've seen octopus, for example, squeeze through these little sections, right? How do you get right. through there? I mean, that's one, that's one to me, one problem that they've solved over millions of years of evolution, assuming that they've lived here all that long. I mean, this is, see, you got me going down so many, I'm going to be taking it so far in the weeds now with this thing. Um, <laughs> well, that's one of the challenges. I think uh, Charles Fort, you know, the guy who documented mm -hmm. so many weird phenomena, yeah, yeah. He, said, he said, one measures a circle beginning anywhere. <laughs> so you come up with the hypothesis, okay, well, what if this is the case? Yeah. You say, well, where do you start? So you got to say, okay, well, let's look at some of these places where people see these phenomena and see. And, and the challenge is, I, I was talking, corresponding with a guy who used to work for, for NASA, and uh, he, he had a whole, his name was William Corliss. He had a whole series of books about documenting what we don't know. They're really fascinating books. And, mm. you know, he documented, he had a whole book on unexplained luminous phenomena in the atmosphere. And so many of them seem to resemble marine invertebrates. So I, you know, corresponded with him and he said, well, you'll need a body. It's kind of like Bigfoot, you know, to uh, prove that these things exist, yeah. you're going to need a body. Well, the yeah. challenge for that is, you know, how do you preserve a jellyfish, an aerial jellyfish? You know, and how do you preserve, how do you catch, how do you get close to an, an animal like an aerial squid that's so quick and so perceptive that you're not going to get anywhere near it. It's going to be able to fly faster than any plane that we have. Yeah. Or, you know, how do you preserve one of those? Well, how do you capture and, one of those to prove it? And the proof's in the pudding, and I'll keep this brief too. There was this documentary I watched uh, uh, a few weeks ago called My Octopus Teacher. <laughs> it was seriously, it's, it's a funny title, but it's on Netflix and I would highly recommend this for you also, Scott. And okay. I mean, I, and I'm not going to spoil it. Um, but it's about a guy who spent basically two years with an octopus under, you know, every day going underwater, watching how this octopus lived. Right. Uh, damn. If I say this though, I'm going to spoil it for you guys. Um, let's just put it this way. Uh, an invertebrate like that, when they die, let's say for example, you're underwater, and it's not much different, I think, than in the forest. If, if, a, if a, let's say a Sasquatch passes, and we talked about this idea, too. If a Sasquatch passes away, if a human passes away in the middle of nowhere like that, any type of animal passes away, they will get scavenged, mm -hmm. right? right? They will get scavenged. Right. Now, multiply that to the nth degree, because at least you may have some bones if you get there in time of whatever creature or carcass was there that, that got picked clean. But with an invertebrate... Basically, the ocean just takes that takes that creature back. I mean, yeah, right. they get picked clean by other fish and whatnot that's out there, but literally, they just more or less dissolve. They just it's quickly recycled, isn't they, it? They yeah. go right back. Yeah. They go right back to the planet. 
right? Which I think is well, you can see that even when uh, you if you walk on a beach, if we're walking on a beach and you see a jellyfish that has washed up, you come back an hour later, it's gone. You know, it's totally evaporated or sublimated. Yeah, yeah. they're not. So they're that's not like that's us. one of the challenges. And the fact, you know, you play a game with this idea. It's so weird. And before I even went down this path, I started to say, well, let's play a game of what if, you know. Well, what if, if these things are there, what might we see? Okay. And so, well, you know, and people ask me, well, if there's jellyfish flying around in the sky, you know, first of all, how do they stay up? I'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, why, <laughs> how come we don't see, how come we don't see them yeah. more often, you know, fall into the ground? And if you look, you know, if you look, you will find reports of blobs falling from the sky, you know, little blobs, big blobs, things that are pulsing and glowing that people have seen are reported, you know, falling down from the sky, whole, you know, sometimes whole, sometimes intact, but they quickly disappear. You know, they quickly just sublimate and just disappear into nothingness. Well, if they're falling from the sky and they're, and they are invertebrates like this and they're falling at a certain speed, they may just, you know, <laughs> right. Disappear. Well, think of how know. much pressure there is in the atmosphere down yeah. near the surface of the Earth yeah. compared to what it's like up where they may normally live. So it's, they're going to be crushed when they come down here. Yeah, I mean, and, I hate to come coming back to octopus, but <laughs> another thing with the octopus, though, too, if assuming that they behave the same way as a squid or a jellyfish, uh-huh. and I think they do, right? Um, I mean, octopus, clearly, they are, they're masters of camouflage. I mean, yes. we've seen videos. Oh, that's weird. That videos, is, videos, that's videos. That's magic. Of and we watch them. It is amazing. Them, but <laughs> why, why not? So like, we see them do this underwater, which is super cool. Uh, why couldn't they float? I mean, I'm going to say that. Why couldn't they just float up to the sky? And it seems like natural that they would kind of blend in with their surroundings, too. So, yeah, you may see something like the Predator in the movie Predator. You see like this well, weird shadow thing, but you don't really see anything. I think we saw some of that in the documentary because when, when, when Scott's, when they're showing clips from nasa and all of the lights and and things moving about and then when you show it like maybe in infrared or inverted color and you do see more of a of a body around all of a sudden you know what i mean like it's it's there's something else there that we can't see yeah and it may be well that's one of the limits is our limits of our perception i mean if you think of uh you know our our construction we have a brain with our two little eyes and then you know we look at things and between our two eyes, we look at, you know, we see things in three dimensions, yeah. but the limits of what we are able to see, is, is, it's very limited in terms of, you know, the distance and just the, the part of the uh, portion of the electromagnetic spectrum we can see. So when you look up at the atmosphere, you know, you, you think you're seeing way up to the sky, but you're only seeing a certain distance and you're not able to see it all the way up to the edge of space. And so most of these objects might be uh, mostly composed of the medium in which they live. So they're probably transparent or translucent so that's why we sometimes see ufos when the lighting conditions are extreme you know near sunset or at night when there's other lights around or when they when they show their display bioluminescence but going back to the camouflage thing yes squid are amazing they have these built-in chromatophores which produce different color pigments yeah and they are so sophisticated one of them swimming in the water can have different camouflage on different sides of its body so the creatures below Looking up, we'll see the squid looking like it's part of the sky. Yeah. And creatures above looking down, we'll see the squid looking like it's part of the water. I mean, I can't even fathom that control yeah, over the that's And they do that so effortlessly too. It isn't you watch you watch a squid move around like that and how they change that pigment. Right. Um, it's it's and also so yeah, fast. and also the uh, the the, l- the luminous aspect of it too. The uh, cro- not only the chromatophores, but also the photophores, which generate light. You know, squid have different ways of generating light. And that's one of the biggest arguments 
for these things in the sky resembling marine organisms. I think one scientist estimated that they're 90% of marine animals use light in some form or another. Yeah, and let, and, let go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, you. well, and people describe, uh, I mean, we're talking about light beyond our ability to use. I mean, these creatures use all different mechanisms to create light. Yeah. And the way people describe some of their encounters with UFOs are that they say it's like, I can't even describe the lights I was seeing. You know, they were beyond anything I could have ever seen before. So... Anyway, go ahead. I no, didn't mean no, that. no, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> Calls wild I, on you. I, I've been. I want to talk about the light now because, yeah, I, I and I've seen stuff like this before too. I mean, I, I can't. I know Amber. You you talked about your experience with Marnie, mm-hmm. um, but there's been a handful of things that I've seen, like kind of like walking along or maybe in the evening doing something, being out in the backyard doing whatever, and I've seen things kind of. Just, I mean, we have we have well, we have some lightning bugs here, yeah. But uh-huh. but those, you know, and the lightning bug, which obviously is a part of this too, very real, very real creature. Right. They, their movements are pretty easy to spot. I mean, when I'm sitting on the porch, we have them fly around every once in a while, and, and they're well. First off, they're pretty close to you. They're not afraid of people, and right. they just kind of they fly, and then you just kind of see them light up a little it's like bit. One of the few bugs that doesn't terrify me because it's cute. Well, they're they're, they're, they're gorgeous. <laughs> they're gorgeous, and they're fascinating <laughs> too. But I've seen a few things, obviously higher in the sky before, where they did have these movements where like where they were more underwater. I mean, they have the same type of movements, like a squid and things like that, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, the coloring, yeah, it's something that it's, well, bioluminescence, and we could talk probably for three hours about that if we wanted to. Um, <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. It, it, it is absolutely yeah. fascinating. Um, it. It, there's it don't look like like one of our lamps we have in the studio here. It's just that's electrical light that's that's basically fire, right? Bio right. And, and and the name alludes to it obviously. Bioluminescence is its natural light, which still blows my mind. And I know I know it can be explained. I don't want to try to even attempt it. How cool that is! <laughs> I mean, I do, but I mean, as far as what I mean, what creates that, uh, whether it's a, a deep sea creature. Or whether it is a squid, or some, or something that's in the, I mean, something that's floating. I mean, okay, I'm melting down here. Amber, take over. It's doing fine. No, it's fascinating <laughs> stuff. I mean, because it's beyond. I really, it's really stretches your mind it's, to think it's, about. Yeah, this man. Stuff. You know, and I mean, we we plan this stuff. I swear. <laughs> but no, like, we haven't even gotten into the scary no, stuff yet. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah what, no. Yeah. Scott yeah. gets. Yeah, yeah. He, you're getting all. You're getting all riled up. I'm getting all riled <laughs> up. I'm getting mouthy. No, it's. But well, let well, me tell you. You know, that was kind of one of the things. Um, when I first uh, started looking at this stuff, I had traveled to Marfa, Texas, where they have the Marfa mystery lights. Yeah. And, I mean, you think, one thing that's interesting, you mentioned it there, people see these ghost lights all over the world. Yeah. And uh, if you think of the atmosphere is this huge environment, okay, it's all connected. The oceans, the land, you know, the rivers, the underground springs, yeah. they're all connected. So if you think of these creatures moving through the atmosphere, they might have particular spots on the surface of the earth that are good habitats where they would find shelter, food sources, and they might go to these places, you know, over generations again and again. And we see places like that where people have seen mystery lights all over the planet. And we think of it as a local phenomenon, but you think, no, they're all connected to the atmosphere. You know, they all, (laughs) things are moving hundreds of thousands of miles, you know, before we can even think about it. And it's interesting because people in these areas they just take this stuff for granted. Oh, yeah, the light that is, is over there. That's over in the woods. People see that, you know, in the summer or whatever. Well, you go to Marfa and there's a, a sign by the side of the road that says, 
mystery light viewing station. <laughs> we have that in Michigan, the Paulding light. The Paulding light. Paulding light, right, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Have you ever gone out to look at that? Not yet. Not yet. It's on our, it's okay. on our list. Well, if you go, you should be patient. And, you know, you think about like an animal, too. They're kind of like a nocturnal animal. A lot of times they'll come out like right before dusk and around dusk. And then they'll be active a little bit after dusk and then sometimes later. But it's not like continuous, but you got to be patient and you got to be quiet. So when I went to Marfa for the first time and looked at these things, they're like browsing around out in the desert. There's nothing out there. And these lights are like moving up and down, going back and forth. And I'm thinking, gosh, it looks like they're browsing amongst the desert vegetation out there. And one of them got real bright and then rose up into the air and it was got really, really bright. And then it split into two completely different lights and each of them started moving independently and then when they came back down to you know ground level started moving their merry way and i'm like holy mackerel that looks like some kind of organism just you know splitting like that mm. and that was kind of like you know that was an instinctive thing that sort of set me on you know on the on the quest well and that's one thing you pointed out something interesting with that too um like the i've had a, we've had a lot of people you know talk to us about the paulding light here for example right in the up and I've had a few people say, oh, man, I went there and nothing, nothing was there. I'm like, well, how long were you there? I was there for about 25 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why I'm making that guy sound like a football, some bully well, football player. But it's, yeah. like, but that's what, it's, that's what I was hearing. Well, is it's, it, like, it, it's like, well, it, first off, this isn't an exact thing. We're still learning this stuff, right? Number right. two, if the, assuming that this is an organism – how predictable are you when you're moving around doing things? I mean, we're organisms. We don't, we, I mean, yeah, we have, I'm sure we, we all have our structure and stuff throughout the day, but there's a lot of play in that too, as far as what we do. So if these, these creatures, these organisms behave the same way, they're going to show up when they feel like showing up. That's right. And, and uh, also you think, you know, if you go out to say, I want to go see a deer, I want to go see a fox. I mean, how likely are you to find it on the first you know, the first yeah, attempt. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. And, and these creatures seem to react. I mean, that's one interesting thing is if you talk to witnesses that don't have any familiarity with this idea at all, but you ask them to describe what they see with these lights or even with UFOs, they say, well, they seem to act like they have some kind of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the earlier uh, UFO researchers, John Keel, the guy who wrote The Mothman. Oh, Prophecies, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was he one of the things he noticed when he studied UFOs is that they don't seem to like being around people. And if you think they're some form of wildlife, well, they would be smart to avoid people because a lot of people's first reaction to seeing a UFO would be to go, shoot yeah. with a gun. Come right for us, shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Come right for us. Yeah. So uh and in fact there are a lot of reports of people shooting at UFOs. <laughs> so they they instinctively avoid people which so uh, and if you go to one of these places to look at these things uh, the people who have lived around there say, well, if you're quiet, you have a better chance of seeing them. But once you start going, look, look, there it is, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go away. Well, that's like any animal. That's going yeah. back to that. I mean, if you yeah. if you finally see that deer you've wanted to see uh, and you see one and you start jumping up and down like a maniac, that deer is just going to take off. That's right. You're like, yeah. oh, that's one of those those two legged things. The, the those things. Yeah, I don't want to be around that. I'm going to get out of here. Go ahead, Amber. Right, I, which would, is parallel to the thing. I'm sorry, Amber. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, which is parallel to how UFOs seem to react uh, to planes in the atmosphere. Some of them they just disappear, and some of them act almost like curious wildlife. They seem to interact with the planes sometimes and come around and check them out. But usually they're going away. They don't want to be around. Yeah, people. They got their own business there. 
to see too. Mm-hmm. There was like that satellite uh, image from NASA, the where the satellite tether snapped, and then yeah, they were right. watching it, and then you see all these little lights, just like what is that? Oh, let's look, and they all kind of gather around it. Isn't that isn't that what it looks like? It does right? look yeah. like that, and then but they're moving like independently. Like I know they say there's space debris up there, and 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 particles and stuff like that, and yeah. maybe there is just completely unintelligent particles and dust up there floating about but these things just all of a sudden one goes this way one goes the other way one seems to be pulsing that's the thing the pulsing well, that gets the, me yeah like right pulsing, yeah it's yeah. it's almost like you can tell when watching those videos you can see what might just be space dust and what seems to have some kind of life behind it right well that's one it's funny there's a, a gentleman from nasa who kind of debunks a lot of ufo reports you know he's adamant that all that stuff was just space debris and uh, he's contacted me several times about it. And I, I, I proposed this hypothesis to him. He said, oh, that's, that's really interesting and well-reasoned. And this guy's like, he, he hates UFOs. He thinks they're destroying, you know, scientific research. But the, the question is, you know, what's the point of arguing about what we saw in the past? If there's a possibility that some of these things could be living creatures, why not just go up and look, you know, like a hunter, like a biologist? Let's look. If it's an interesting scientific hypothesis, why not study it? And let's not sit here on the ground and go, oh, no, no, it couldn't be. It's, not, it's impossible. They're all ice crystals. You know, let's actually send some good cameras up there and actually look instead of just seeing them in passing or by accident, yeah. which is what the tether incident was. That was just strictly an accident. But I think that that's probably one of the most you know important pieces of scientific history. Uh, the fact that you yeah. know they're up in the, the space shuttle and they see thousands of these giant what look like creatures swarming around this satellite and it, it happened totally by accident you know and and they're all going uh what's that stuff swimming around <laughs> and just think about that but i haven't seen any follow-up on that like wow what were those things let's go study them some more right so that's what i'd like to see happen is let's actually you know get up there and you know we have uh, submersibles remotely operated vehicles that go in the water in the oceans wouldn't it be fascinating to get some objects up there some uh, you know, some kind of uh, vehicles up there that we could control to actually go to some of the places in the atmosphere where these things are seen. Right. And maybe drone technology is going to be able to take us there. Cause yeah, that's just, a great idea. It just seems like something that, I don't know, that'd, that'd be a cool, like, at-home science kit for your kid. Like, we got to re- yeah, bring home a UFO. Look what I caught, Mom. <laughs> I got a jellyfish today. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is one point I wanted to... Uh, to, to mention is that and we talked about bioluminescence and uh, one of the things the ways that organisms use bioluminescence is to attract and to stun prey so we see that a lot of times with people's encounters with ufos and i would warn anybody that sees something like this in the atmosphere in the sky coming towards them or away from them i wouldn't do not approach it uh, because these marine invertebrates have some of the most deadly neurotoxins and poisons that we know of. And this is another area where UFOs seem to resemble marine invertebrates. When people encounter them, they have serious, some people have, some witnesses have serious uh, psychological and physiological, um, you know, injuries that can be immediate and long lasting. It can be debilitating. So if you're near one, if you see one of these things and get to shelter, don't go near it because the tentacles from a jellyfish can extend far longer than its actual main body. So that's just a word of caution. There's a lot of evidence, and this is some of the scary stuff too. There's a lot of evidence that these organisms do hunt, 
Uh, we see a lot of evidence of aerial predators that we can't explain. That, that makes me even more freaked out about what we saw. Like, was that thing coming down to hunt the kids playing putt-putt? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You were lucky to get away, Amber. <laughs> it's like we're just sitting there. Like, it's, it's almost like, oh, my God, those, those two people see us. Nope, okay, we can't do this. Let's go, guys. <laughs> and the, Isn't that crazy? And they didn't even notice off. it was above them. That's it's, crazy. No, no. I mean, it was so – it's not like it was super bright or or giving off some kind of – I, I don't know. It was just, it was subtle, but enough that I, I well, thought it was. Well, it was, sol- it, it, it was it, solid it, enough that I thought it was a drone at first yeah. until it got closer and then it looked translucent. And I, I really can't even, I feel like it was close to us yet. I don't know if it was something completely massive because mm-hmm. with how fast it was suddenly a speck in the sky, I thought, was that thing just really big, but way up there? And that's why, so, or, or is it well, like... Well, yeah, you, what's your perspective was, yeah. you don't know what... Well, that's one of the challenges, yeah. You can't tell when the sky's like, no. how far away is that thing? Yeah. No, so that spooks yeah. me out. But, you know, when you when you did the Cahoke Light documentary, one thing we love on this show is when people are able to take their time to research something. And you did a year-long study yeah. with this light, and you got to get out there during different seasons where you even noticed that the light seemed to be a little more active. Like, Isn't that crazy? Did yeah. you? What about some of those lights we caught? We captured those are amazing, aren't they? They're amazing. Oh my goodness! Yeah. The- I, I was I was really well. That's what you know. We some of the things that we got. I'll, I'll give a little background to the audience. There's uh, one of these lights. You talk to people about this stuff, and it's amazing how many people go, "Oh, there's a light like that," you know, just over yonder. Yeah. <laughs> so I had never heard of the Cohoke light, but I was down in in Virginia, and this is near a town called West Point, Virginia, and somebody said, "Oh, have you heard of the Cohoke light?" I hadn't heard of it. So I went there and started talking to folks and, you know, everybody had stories about seeing it, going down to the railroad tracks. There's this area of railroad tracks in this rural area of Virginia where people see this light. And like so many lights, it bobs up and down and swings back and forth. They see it. They say it seems to move with some kind of intelligence. And so we went down there and actually, you know, staked out for uh, many nights over the course of almost a year to try and get a good look at these things. And it was, we actually got, I mean, most of the time we're getting eaten by mosquitoes or, you know, just sitting there twiddling our thumbs, but we actually got footage of some amazing bioluminescent aerial organisms. I mean, there are a couple of things there that I don't think anybody's ever captured before. Uh, these things are, you know, swooping down and flashing green light and then flying away before you even get a chance to see what they are. And even though we had some really good cameras, it was tough to get a good look at them. So that's one of the challenges too. These things are fast, you know, they're kind of translucent and it's hard to tell how far they are from the camera. So, and it's usually dark when we can see them. So those are all challenges to trying to get good pictures of them. But I think if we're determined, we would be able to, but that's the one area. So just going down, that was kind of like a pilot study to get a proof of concept to say, okay, if you go to these places where these things are seen and if you're determined and patient, can you get a good look at them? And we actually did. So what I love to do is get even better equipment and instead of going to one place, set up a whole network of observation points, you know, around the world where people see these things Mm -hmm. and then share that information so we can get an idea, almost like a biological survey of the atmosphere and try to map out where these things are, where they're going. Uh, Because it is now, it's all this isolated information. We're always reacting after the fact. Yeah. Well, you know, a question here also, you know, on the documentary, uh, I, and I, I'm trying to figure out how to answer. I want to ask this question the proper way. So don't the, worry about it. The, just shoot. And the Coho <laughs> and the Coho Light documentary. So were you guys 
And I and the idea you just propose, like just setting up like observation centers all over the planet, that's a fantastic idea. But I guess the question I have is watching this phenomena in the documentary. Um, so you guys were more or less just filming from one area, right? Like one point and you were shooting out, like you were filming out towards, uh, well, in front of you, basically, far out in down front the, of you. Down the tracks, right. Down yeah. the tracks. So I guess the question I have, would another interesting idea, I think, would be to set up maybe multiple centers on the tracks, it seems that like. That's a great idea. And the challenge is, you know, what level you're dealing with, you know, not only a, a horizontal distance, but you're dealing with a vertical challenge, yeah. too. I mean, when we were down there, uh, we have five cameras. Yeah. And there was this row of trees and there was this bright light. And we had a point, our cameras all pointed down the tracks because that's where people said the light showed up most. Uh, and this bright green light flashed from the top of this row of trees. And then this brighter light came down from the sky right to where that light was and flashed back at it. And then the light in the trees flashed again. And then the thing, the, the thing in the sky just went and zipped away. And we're all there with our mouths open. And I said, did anybody get that? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, nobody did. We were all we were all there. We had all these cameras, but because it was just slightly out of where we, the you know that point at which we were looking, we didn't get it. So this is one of the challenges too. Not only do you have to look at you know ground level, but you also want to have you know Amber mentioned the drone technology is a great. I mean, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a great idea. Maybe tethered balloons yeah. where you could have like a long term presence in the atmosphere. Uh, even satellites just looking, you know, with the right tools to look for biological uh, material in the atmosphere. So it, it has to be kind of a multi-pronged approach. We want to kind of crowd, we want to crowdsource the investigation of the atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I say that knowing that, yeah, let, let's have like 20 crews on one train track and we'll capture everything. And I know <laughs> oh how, yeah, I, that's going to cost a bit of cash to have all that equipment out <laughs> yeah. there. I understand. Well, the challenge is, is the length of time. I mean, you know, you sit out there, uh, sat out there many nights, and sometimes you wouldn't see a thing. So it takes a certain mindset to do that. You have to kind of get somebody who's dedicated to do it. I'm, I'm not willing to do it all the time, but uh, yeah, you know, if you find people who are interested, and somebody has to. Suppose you set up like a an unmanned camera. Somebody has to change the battery. Somebody has to download the memory card. You know, this is these are all challenges to the thing. But there are places, you know, where this. Uh, I mean, I went to back to Marfa years later with the Travel Channel. And we took a big uh, forward-looking infrared truck, you know, one of the big trucks with the powerful infrared they can see, uh, cameras. They can see somebody at night uh, 30 miles away. Yeah. And we went down there, and within, you know, an hour after dark, we were seeing weird lights. And so it can be done. It's, it's, it's you know, possible. It's just a question of, you know, how do you organize and how do you go forward? And then what do you do with the information? I know what... We, and we talked about, about bioluminescence a bit here. Uh -huh. I know, for example, and I mentioned this before in the deep sea, for example, why these deep sea fish use bioluminescence. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a hunting tool. Uh, it's also a means of them to see things. I mean, there's a there's a handful of uses they use bioluminescence in the right. deep sea. Courtship, yeah. Courtship, yeah. Another great, yeah. another good example. Repel predators, sure. Yeah, uh, but I'm curious what the idea would be. I mean, and again, I know there's a, there's a lot of questions that can be asked, and there's there's probably not a lot of answers out there. But I guess assuming like something like in the Coho Light documentary, 
let's assume that these are these are organisms. These are creatures, right? Okay. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, my question, I guess, you know, my idea, I'll say idea, is why? What are they using this light for, I guess? What's the reason? Well, think of, remember I mentioned uh, in Marfa, the light seemed to be browsing around in the desert vegetation? Yeah. Now, think if, uh, you know, what are moths attracted to? Light. Right. So if these things are out there and they're browsing around, gently moving through the desert flowers that bloom at night, and they got kind of these venomous tentacles, and they can get their prey, and they can attract their prey with light. You know, they might just, they might be just browsing around through these things, and and you know, getting you know, and feeding on the insects that might be attracted to light. So that that's one possibility. That makes uh, sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know. It just it just seems to make sense. But it, I think there's a lot of reasons it's important that we we look at this stuff because it, I mean it, it's fascinating, it's interesting, but it's also kind of urgent in some ways. First of all, I people that see UFOs. And, you know, you guys know lots and lots of people see these things. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times it, they get very uh, unsettled because they can't explain what they've seen. And some people, I, I've known some people that have gone down some weird rabbit holes about you know, trying to explain, trying to find some you know, meaning for what, what they saw and nobody else believes them. It's kind of like the Richard Dreyfus character in Close Encounters. Oh. <laughs> uh, so it's important that we give these people some kind of, you know, sound explanation yeah what you saw was really amazing and it's fascinating but it could be totally natural you yeah. know, you're not insane and and so i mean there's pilots and police that have you know, had really bad experiences because they've seen these things and nobody will believe them. in fact some of them are afraid to even report them uh, so i think that's a, that's a really important uh, reason that we need to do this but another reason is safety as i mentioned people have encountered these things mm-hmm. and had debilitating you know injuries from getting close to these objects uh, a guy named Bob Pratt wrote a whole book about a village in Brazil. It's called UFO Danger Zone. And it's uh, it's it's fascinating because these people that live down there, these things are, are hunting the people at night and, you know, grabbing the people. And they, there's one story about this object flying down like a, a big jellyfish and trying to pull a guy up. He's hanging onto a, oh, a no. tree with no, all his no, might. No, 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 no. I know. And this thing's no. yanking him up and down oh. the tree trying to get him loose. And some of these people they, they, that he, he interviewed and talked to down there, they were exposed to these things, attacked by these things. And they, they were had really serious neurological damage. Oh, I mean, venom, the never venom, yeah. The, I mean, from a, from a jellyfish, obviously, the, and you mentioned that before, the venom. Yeah, uh, that's and very squid, dangerous. sometimes squid actually, you know, your, your favorite there, Scott, squid, they actually can <laughs> pump out, they pump out neurotoxic gas yeah. into the environment to, you know, subdue their prey before they actually go get it. Uh, so, you know, the idea of coming up, however rare it might be, some kind of anti-venom or whatever, some kind of treatment for people who are exposed to this stuff might be important. Another element is, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned in the documentary, and this is another thing that kind of led me to think that you know, maybe I was on onto something here. When I began looking at this, uh, they just discovered the existence of sprites in the atmosphere. Yeah, we didn't. Even, I mean, we haven't even talked about. I'm sorry. Let's talk all yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, now think these these sprites are what they you know scientists currently think they're electrical phenomena uh, that. They say, even the scientists themselves say, oh, they look like jellyfish. You know, they look like giant jellyfish. They look, and they said there's a whole new aerial bestiary in the atmosphere. Yeah. And you look at these pictures and, I mean, there's no question. They look like jellyfish. But there's no, there's no way that a jellyfish could actually be in the sky. And some of these people say, but, and, you know, but some of these things could be 
200 miles tall we're talking about. Now, they have found that there are more and you know there are more sprites than they ever expected. They used to think they were just above thunderstorms. Uh, but now they find that these sprites exist. They might be invisible in the daylight, but they're in the atmosphere. You know, there's many more sprites. We don't have, we have no idea how prevalent, how you know, numerous sprites are. So you're talking about 200 mile tall possible organisms that are changing the atmosphere. And scientists have described, you know, there are chemical changes in the atmosphere where these things are. Mm. Now, might these play a role in actually creating or moderating the atmosphere that makes li human life on earth possible and so it's important that we kind of understand because here we are sending up you know satellites with electromagnetic energy and possibly talking about spreading chemicals in the air to to you know try and uh, mitigate global warming or whatever and if we somehow screw up the balance it's up there you know we might be shooting ourselves in the foot in terms of you know what's actually maintaining our atmosphere so i think it's important that we you know investigate if there is a biological component about that of that so it's it's a you know not only fun to study but it's important to study well not they're incredible looking and one of the things i noted from the documentary about the sprites was that there's actually they've detected a deep rumbling infrasound that's that even crazy? during the clear daylight isn't that crazy? I mean, it's kind of creepy. So maybe, yeah. And then, then maybe that means like, okay, this thing doesn't necessarily need a storm to exist or be created. It's just right. there. And and the fact right. that they've detected massive gravity waves from sprites, like as if they're swimming in the atmosphere. That's like, insane, isn't it? I mean, just, I, I, and when you think about in the paranormal, how many times people explain anomalous feelings and see things that they just like like with the ufos like that you just can't explain how they felt what they saw and you think about all this stuff that we just because like we said this earlier that we think we're the smartest things on the planet and we yeah. don't even have a fraction of stuff figured out i mean look at the past you know over a year we're trying to figure out a tiny little virus right that's got us like <laughs> that's a good completely example completely right. bamboozled and so it, it's just, and, and of course, everyone's an expert on the internet when it comes to that. So it's just, it's funny to see how, how far we've come in some things and yet how far behind we are in, in others and that we can't sometimes admit that we're really far behind or that, wait, let's, like you said, let's, let's throw the hypothesis out there and let's explore the atmosphere. It's, let's see what kind of zoo's up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, uh, that, that's, that's a funny example that you mentioned because you asked previously about the, you know, the government and UFOs. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if they manage the UFOs as well as they've managed everything, you know, uh, I, that's why I'm kind of saying I'm not re relying on them for all their, all, you know, the, the answer yeah. to, to things. But, uh, you know, I think one of the, the questions uh, about this is, you know, where could this all lead us? Uh, and we sometimes, a lot of our inventions are derived from what we see in nature. You know, nature is like the greatest inventor, the greatest composer of, of all these variations, all these different technologies. And so many of our inventions are based on, on that. Now, if we find animals that are moving through the atmosphere that can you know, travel great distances, they can stay up without any kind of seeming effort, they can propel themselves, they can make their own light, they can, uh, you know, withstand harsh conditions over, you know, long periods of time and vast distances, hey, what can we learn from that? And that might be a key to our actual, you know, evolution of uh, new means of space travel. Yeah. So it, it's it's really there's a lot of potential for the, the topic. Absolutely fascinating. Right. I'm. Just, 
I'm just blown away. The, the, the stuff is it, it's it makes you think about a lot of things. It makes you think about the earth. Um, that I mean, and I we've said this a lot about ghosts recently, a lot. Um, and I'm, it's something I'm starting to believe that you know the study of ghosts that we talk about often on this show is it's. I think it may maybe nothing more than some force of nature we don't understand. Well, and, that's an interesting thing because uh, you know invertebrates. This is one of the things that, that we don't uh, appreciate because we have a, a relatively uh, stable uh, body form. Yeah, you know, we grow as infants, and we grow to the, this. You know, we grow to adults. And there's a, a certain range of, of size of our of the human body. Invertebrates have incredibly complex. Some of them have incredibly complex lifestyles. And for example, a jellyfish could be tiny, almost microscopic, and then it can be massive. They're some of the biggest. Uh, I think the biggest organism ever measured on this planet was a jellyfish. So they grow, and they're not limited by a skeleton. So we see all different phenomena in the atmosphere that seem to be, that could possibly be, you know, biological, but we, we still, we're not thinking of them in, in terms of a unified, uh, yeah. unified phenomena. We're still thinking, for example, ball lightning, poltergeists. I mean, mm -hmm. people have described all these things as moving, you know, acting like they're alive. And yeah. uh, there's great stories about ball lightning coming in windows, moving around, checking people out. Uh, there are, you know, orbs, they seem to move around. And if you look at the difference between, you know, uh, tiny immature in invertebrates and the mature adults, I mean, when they're immature, when they're just born, there might be millions of them and they're all just kind of floating around, not knowing what they're doing. And the smart ones grow to be the adults that are the big ones. You know, they, they actually, the intelligent survivors are the ones that we might recognize more. Yeah. And we see that same phenomena with the, 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 things that we see in the atmosphere. There's a whole range of sizes and forms. Well, I mean, and we got to stop thinking, I think, in these terms of, of the human skeleton, for example. You're right. We have a very rigid body. And as I mentioned that earlier, I'm watching videos of squid and, and octopus and things like that, and even jellyfish, too, just squeezing themselves through little places. Just it, it, It's like the thing is like four foot, of, four foot wide, and it just fit itself through like a three-inch little hole and got itself back in the ocean. I've seen these videos. Um, we can't solve that problem. Our bodies, we have. That's we can't crazy. figure that out, right? So, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, I think we have to get out of this idea of thinking about, well, it has to be this way. Uh, it has to be our way, our rules as humans, because uh, that, that's what makes sense. No, it don't necessarily make sense, because um, I think the squid and the jellyfish and these things we've talked about tonight are living proof of that, literal living proof of that. There's, there's going to be a bunch of people that listen to this show and go, I'm not going outside ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I, tell you, I wear a hard hat when I go outside. <laughs> I mean, I think I think there. I think you're well, right, Scott. There's a lot of fascinating stuff. I mean, there's yeah. the, the, I think John Keel again said that one of the uh, many UFO witnesses might be the lucky ones that escaped. So, yeah, I mean, if you look at how many yeah. people disappear each year, the numbers are kind of yeah. frightening. And if you read about some of the phenomena, like uh, uh, David Pilatus yes. is you know, missing four one one, where we talked yeah. about. Oh, yeah, geez. and and one of the explanations could be well, there's aerial predators. Things are coming down out of the atmosphere and grabbing things off the ground. I mean, it's easy pickings. Uh, yeah, the whole phenomenon of cattle mutilations. I was thinking about uh, going hiking soon. <laughs> I'm thinking twice about that now. I think. I mean, it's that's truly scary. I mean, and this is, I guess, this is the scary side of this. Um, is this idea that you mentioned about things literally coming out of the sky and grabbing you? Um, 
that trips me out. But I think that doesn't make any of this less fascinating of what the potential is and what's out there. And that's what I want people to think about when they when they hear this show is just that if you've gotten this far, um, that's the idea here. And I think this is a whole new way of looking at 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 I guess the study of UFOs. I mean, I'm, I'm using the term UFO. Apparently, that's like the old. No, term you now. can. Uh, well, you know, no, yeah, I think. It, and this is again. I'll I'll ask you guys to brainstorm. You got any ideas for a, a brand? I mean, sprites. These things are you know 200 miles tall. They're giant. They got they flash incredibly fast. They move incredibly fast. Yeah. And we're calling them sprites. It seems like a misnomer. Right. You know, it just doesn't fit. <laughs> so I, you got any suggestions? You got any thoughts? You'd have to. You'd have to think. You could come up with some really cool name. Like you could go back into like mythology. Oh, or I'd something. call it a name, and I would. It probably wouldn't be good for the air. But you know, it would. <laughs> if I saw something like that, I'd be like, "Wow!" It, it, I it, saw some crazy stuff. It'd probably end up just being like Sky Squid. <laughs> and oh, then, even, you know, Sky that's squid. it. I like Sky Squid. Snappy. Well, even Sky like squid. dragons. If you read some of the earliest reports of what we call dragons. Yeah. I mean, now we think of in the reptile. Uh, form, but some of the earliest reports of dragons were these glowing circles of lights that lived on the tops of mountains that would come down oh, and you know yeah. spirit people away. Yeah. Yep. And, Scott, I want to say thank you. Really, I want to say thank you for taking the time again to talk to us. And I uh, mean that yeah. this is absolutely fascinating. It's it really changes my thoughts and my perspective on a lot of. Oh, it's just another thing to think about about all. This well, stuff. Scott, I got to ask you one more question. Sure. Uh, yeah. What's up? Uh, what happened to the bones of the sharks? I mean, was this octopus putting them in the garbage can? Or was he- <laughs> I, dude, I don't know. That's actually an interesting idea. I don't know. I don't know where they were at. I don't know. <laughs> I don't you know. know something else that's really, really weird. Is it? Uh, I went to the Baltimore Aquarium to get footage of jellyfish. Yeah. They let us behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and they told us an amazingly similar story about their octopus. Yeah. They were missing fish from the tank. Yeah. This guy would let himself out, and then they set up cameras. This guy would let himself out at night and let himself back in. So, I mean, yeah. So, this isn't the only time that happened then, clearly. I mean, these, yeah. these, I mean, like I said, I, I mean, the clothes here, I mean, that that's this is what this comes down to for me. You know, thinking about these creatures is just that, is that they're absolutely amazing problem solvers. Uh, yes. And, and that's the key to it. I've, I've see, I, why do I keep talking about octopus today? What's I, you're obsessed. I'm obsessed with octopus. <laughs> I watched well, Scott, you got to look up. There have been sky octopus reported. I mean, they're, well, they're I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't doubt that. I mean, they. I, yeah. it seems like they would be out there too, along with the squid and the jellyfish and stuff like that. So, I think they're they're all kind of the same to me. Thank you so much again, though, Scott. We really appreciate it. Um, and where love can the, people yeah. find? Oh yeah, let's talk all, all yeah. about that stuff. Yeah, we yeah. need to plug you. Where can people find all of your information? Sorry, I'm slacking on my self promo here. We're slacking. Uh, no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> to, to you can check out thelivingsky.com. Yeah. Uh, there's a website, thelivingsky.com, and we also have a YouTube channel, The Living Sky, and you can see some of uh, – we have different investigations. The topic is so huge that it, there, there's so many so many fascinating topics. We have videos on like a guy who studied freshwater jellyfish. We have a compilation of orbs. We have all kinds of interesting stuff. The, the, the subject matter is endless. Uh, but in, if it, we offer the documentaries there and we have uh, – DVDs and Blu-rays, and you can download or rent the, yeah. the documentaries. And in fact, if you want to use the, to listeners of Ghostly Talk, if you want to use the code "The Living Sky," all one word, you'll get twenty percent off on our website. So. Nice. Cool. We'll put and we'll make sure that that gets nice. all put up on the posting for the yes. show per usual. We'll make sure that's all taken care of. And we got to do this again, Scott. Really, because I oh, thanks. Uh, it's an honor. It's great talking with you guys. It's a blast talking with you. Ghostly Talk. <laughs> Did you ever see this again?